If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. So uh, thank you for coming along to this uh, debate, Crisis of the West. Uh, Western values have been extraordinarily uh, successful, uh, and yet uh, we seem now rather on the back foot, unsure of the values themselves, and sometimes embarrassed about our own past. Beset with postmodern doubts, do we need to revive our belief and the importance uh, of these values, or should we just accept that the age of the West is over? So, we have uh, with us uh, Gita Sagal, who is a writer and journalist and a prize-winning documentary director. Uh, she, like her mother, who was uh, due to be with us, but Gita has stepped in, we're very pleased to know, uh, is a, a member of the Nehru Gandhi family. Uh, but like her mother, uh, she has been a very independent and critical voice. Uh, and then Philip Collins, uh, columnist at the Times, uh, chairman of the think tank uh, Demos, senior fellow at the LSE, and of course the former chief writer uh, to Tony Blair. Kwasi Kwarteng uh, is a conservative MP, former chairman of the Bow Group, uh, who's been uh, seen as a rising star on the right of the party. Uh, he was educated at Cambridge and uh, Harvard, and he's a PhD in economic history. And relevant to this debate, he's written The Ghosts of Empire and uh, War and Gold, A 500-Year History of Empire's Adventure and Debt. So I'm going to give each of them uh, just three minutes to lay out their stall and to address the question, uh, do we need to uh, revive Western values uh, or is the age of the West over? And I'm going to start off with Gita. Well, you know, if you, if you were born east of the Suez, as, as um, my mother was and I was, and she was born uh, under the British Empire, you might have thought that uh, the World War II, a war between, you know, capitalist imperialist powers and fascists were, was a war of two Western knowledge systems and values, sets of values. Um, uh, so, you know, I want to look at what we mean by Western values. Do we mean universal values for which I stand? And my, had my mother stood before you, she would stand for democracy, for equality between the sexes, for, uh, for free speech against the killings of writers for, for with whom governments disagree, and so on. Um, but let's go back a bit and look at, um, you know, World War II was perhaps the quintessential time where when people talk about what you mean by Western values, I think, the defense of Western values was the, was the fight against fascism. And I want to look at the figure of a resistance heroine uh, honored in France, who was known as Madeleine, um, who uh, 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 you know f uh, f was a radio operator in the resistance. And it turns out that Madeleine 
uh, actually had an SOE identity card. I mean, she, she was a British agent dropped behind enemy lines. The first woman dropped as a radio operator behind enemy lines, and her name on her identity card was Nora Baker. Well, still, of course, Western, French, English, uh, uh, American as her mother was. Baker was her mother's American name. Uh, but what was Madeline's? Uh, uh, what 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 did Madeline do? She she survived longer. Radio operators were picked up very very fast. They had a very low survival rate. She did the work of six radio operators. She survived for months and months with the Nazis hunting her. Eventually, she was betrayed. They never actually found her on their own with their vans finding aerials, and uh, she ended up in Dachau in the dying days um, uh, when the Nazis knew they had lost. They took women agents they'd arrested to Dachau, beat them up brutally, assaulted them, and she was shot, and her last words were liberté. Uh, her real name was Noor Inayat Khan. She was a Sufi Muslim, a museum, a, a, a musician, a children's writer, an illustrator, a pacifist, and as she told her SOE masters, she believed in the freedom of India and independence. And when she'd done with the Nazis, she was going to go to India and fight for independence. She stood for what you might call Western values, but I would call universal values. She stood against fascism at a time of world crisis against fascism. But if we frame our question in terms of the West and the other, we are going to really miss where our allies are. Because the things that are undermining the West come from within the West and from within Western policies. They come from uh, the, the ways in West, which, the, the particularly, and I talk it, uh, now about Britain, British governments have imported empire policies in order to manage minorities at home seeing minorities as sort of infra-citizens to be guided by their chiefs and their rulers. I believe Kwasi has written about this in relation to empire uh, and, and uh, you know, not to have full citizenship. David Cameron a few years ago criticized the policy of multiculturalism. A lot of people didn't know what he meant. They thought that he was attacking uh, a, a, a mixed race, uh, 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 a plural society. Uh, I don't think that's what David Cameron meant. He was attacking the social, this kind of social policy, which was a pernicious social policy. Um, and, and I was attacking it t more than 20 years ago, around 89, at the time of the Rushdie affair, um, uh, bec uh, you know, when Cameron, I think, was probably still in short pants. Um, and, uh, uh, I but it wasn't understood. Uh, what that was all about. But even though the Tories have attacked many of Labour's foundational policies, uh, they continue in the same vein, in fact, uh, because they cannot rid themselves of the idea that minorities are meant to be guided by priests and imams and various forms of fundamentalists. So Cameron has valorized his relationship with Narendra Modi, who is the Hindu fundamentalist prime minister of India, I mean, beyond the duty of two big nations talking to each other, as nations must, but actually putting his political eggs in Modi's basket and appealing to Indian voters uh, because of his relationship with Modi. And when I see both of them bowing before the statue of Gandhi in Westminster Square, uh, you know, I feel a sense of massive irony that Modi, who is de descended from the movement that killed Gandhi and is killing Gandhian ideals today, is being valorized by the British Prime Minister, and we of Indian origin are supposed to fall behind that. Thank you. Well, it strikes me as I was thinking about the crisis of the West that um, there's probably no better place to observe the last weekend before the apocalypse than just to come to a nice town and go to a literary festival in the sunshine. If there's a crisis of the West, it doesn't really quite feel like it here. And I just want to interrogate what we mean by this crisis. There is no question that Western societies, the rich democracies, have any number of deficiencies and flaws and problems that they need to address. And I'm not blind to that at all. But when we talk about Western values, we mean the best of Western values. We mean democracy, equality, human rights, the rule of law, the benign application of science. And these are great historic achievements. They're not, as Gita has said, uh, exclusive to the West, and nothing much hangs on calling them Western values. 
I don't want to get into that cul-de-sac of saying they're Western values. I would rather argue for them directly. They are good things. They are hospitable to the flourishing of human life wherever they arise. They arise, for example, as Gita said, in India, a great adventure in uh, democratic politics for whom there were many skeptics when it began in 1947. Uh, I was reading the other day a report in the Times of the, of, the, of the day that said it is inconceivable that this country of very many languages can house a democracy. Well, it turns out 60 odd years later, not inconceivable uh, at all. Uh, still flourishing despite its um, setbacks and, uh, and moments of crisis but still flourishing. So these values house the most hospitable way of human flourishing there is. They're under threat to the extent they are for two reasons. One is economic. There's no question there's a passage of power from the West to the East uh, in economic terms. Um, in particular, of course, India and China. Now, China, you don't have the same obeisance to those rules of law and equality human rights that you have in the countries I was describing before. So we've got a challenge to that framework there with the immense economic power that China is currently gathering and the way in which China is using that economic muscle around the world, notably in Africa. So there's one very serious, genuine uh, material threat. The second is more internal and more subtle, which is our own lack of confidence in those in the ideas that I've been commending. There are times when we are apt to blame ourselves for every conflict in the world. There may not be a crisis in the West, but there's very certainly a crisis in the Middle East. And it's quite common for people in the rich democracies to think, rather arrogantly, I always think, that in some sense that's entirely our fault. I'm not blind to the previous imperial involvement of Western nations in that region. But the notion that the, some of the ideological transformations in that region are entirely the result of things that we have done strikes me as both arrogant on our part that people are simply puppets of what we do and entirely historically uh, illiterate um, about the nature of those societies and the way they've developed independently of us. So insofar as there's any kind of crisis in the West, it's about the decline of American power, the growth of China, and then this attendant lack of confidence we have in some of the greatest things that human beings have thought, which is to say democracy, human rights, equality and the rule of law. Thank you, Philip. Um, thank you very much uh, for your introduction. I tend to take a slightly different view. Uh, I'm sure you'll be happy to hear that uh, from our two panellists. I don't want simply to re repeat what they've said. Um, I, th I think the crisis is a bit more immediate um, than would be indicated by you know, this beautiful setting in this uh, very comfortable part of the world. I think um, if you look across Europe, and particularly in the Middle East, there very much is a crisis. Um, there are peoples moving in their millions uh, to escape war-torn uh, war areas. Um, I think many of those people um, have uh, an Islamic faith. They're not fundamentalists in any way, but they have a, a different um, cultural uh, heritage, intellectual heritage. And to say that there isn't a tension, there isn't some degree of uh, latent uh, uh, conflict between some of those ideas and uh, what we may loosely call Western universal values, I think is a bit naive. I mean, clearly there is a problem when you see an atrocity like we did in Paris six months ago. Um, that's not something that's usual. I mean, I'm 41 years old, and I've been to Paris many times, but I can tell you that the, the terrorism in Paris was an abnormal thing to happen. And clearly, if you look at this phenomenon, there is something to do with people of different uh, faiths, uh, inspired by different values, who want to act, uh, enact extreme acts of violence. I don't think we can pretend that that isn't a problem, or, or, or that somehow it has nothing to do with a very different worldview. Um, clearly, it is a problem, and clearly it is uh, ideologically, loosely, religiously based. Uh, similarly with ISIS, um, for someone of my age, and someone as a historian looking at empire, um, the phenomenon of marauders uh, seizing uh, lands, uh, setting up a religiously inspired uh, empire, a caliphate, uh, this again is abnormal, it's unusual. It doesn't happen very often. In, in world history. 
Um, I mean, p some friends of mine mentioned the Normans um, in Sicily. They did sim something similar. Um, but the extent to which they were motivated by their Catholic faith is an open question. So we, I don't think we can just pretend that there isn't a problem or that there isn't um, some degree of conflict between uh, differing values. And in this context, I think if there is a conflict, I don't want to talk about a clash of civilizations. I mean, that was very much the American sort of language at the beginning of this century. But there is clearly some uh, unease uh, about uh, living in, 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 a, in, a, in a world where there are different um, cultural absolutes. And I don't think there's much compromise that we can have with a phenomenon like ISIS. Um, if 15 years ago we talked to you about ISIS, we would have thought, um, you would have thought I was mad. The notion of ISIS uh, as, as, as early as, as late as 2000, the year 2000, was incredible. So to sum up, I would say that there is a conflict. I think there is a crisis of values or, or in terms of the uh, weight the, or, or, or your confidence, the, the West universal uh, values, um, the confidence that we have in projecting those, uh, those values. I think there is a tension uh, in communities within Britain who have different uh, values. Uh, and the situation is much more acute in France, where you have a large uh, Islamic population which is not remotely integrated into that society. These are big problems. And I think that um, what Philip suggested was that there is a lack of confidence, actually, in some of those values, whatever we call them. Um, and, and I think you know, we need to work out what it is, what those values are, and how we think they can be best promoted and people can be integrated to share that universal culture. Um, you know, in, in our communities and also um, externally. The debate. Theme one. Thank you, Kwasi. So, th there is, I think Philip identified two ways we can think of a threat to uh, what we might think of, of as Western values. And one of those comes from internally, our own doubts about uh, reason and progress and democracy. And uh, secondly, a threat from the actual situation on the ground from alternatives. So let, let's try and take those separately and, and begin with a threat internally. Uh, Gita, do, do you think there is a threat to those uh, traditional enlightenment values of, of reason and, and progress uh, internally? Yes, absolutely. I think there's a huge threat in Britain, in the academy, and, and, in, and in the US and perhaps other places as well. Uh, to the values of the Enlightenment because they have been um, attacked by post-structuralists, post-modernists, post-colonial theorists, etc., as being um, the f you know the foundation of uh, Im imperialist values and the export of uh, an imposition of Western values on other subject peoples and so on. Um, and there's some truth in some of that, but it is only part of the story because, of course, those very same values were the values that the subject peoples used to rise against uh, their masters and, and overthrow them and so on way back you know, f after the French Revolution, the Haitian slaves fought an enormous long war uh, uh, in, uh, against the French Republic, who, which didn't want to export its values, uh, and so on. So, so yes, the universities have these, um, uh, this, and, and it affects people like me who are campaigners on women's rights and so on, because you actually have, uh, and I've had this reported recently by young people that I work with, uh, one was a, a young African woman, a British African, who is uh, at Goldsmiths College London, who attended a seminar where the, where the lecturer defended female genital mutilation, or said, well, we shouldn't really have a view on it because who are we you know, to say anything? And, and, uh, the, uh, and the other was a Pakistani student uh, in Cambridge, again, who attended a lecture. And, and you couldn't believe what he was hearing. He had not come to Britain from Pakistan in order to have female genital mutilation defended uh, in, in the space of the university. So yes, there is a huge crisis of values. I, I founded a center called the Center for Secular Space. And to call yourself a secularist, that is somebody who defends freedom of religion, but also freedom from religion in public policy, uh, you know, it's, I might as well call myself a racist. You know, it's like calling myself a paid up member of the National Front. Donors, liberal donors who are funding Al-Qaeda public relations networks do not want to fund, and these are social justice organizations like the, the Roundtree Social Services Trust, don't want to fund people who are promoting secular values and fighting against things like forced marriage, domestic violence, uh, female genital mutilation. You think th these things are no-brainers, that you wouldn't really have to make the argument, but you do have to make the argument again and again. So, so Philip, you, you were saying, actually, there's not really a crisis, we're all 
comfortable here. It seems to be all okay. Do that's not the picture that Gita is giving. No, the, the, the point where I think there's no crisis is I think we, we ought to display great confidence in what we think. But, but doubt is where we start with this, of course. I mean, Descartes begins with doubt. That's where it all begins, isn't it? I, he thinks, therefore, he is, because he knows he's aware of doubting. And to doubt what we think is, of course, is a, is a yes, fine sign of progress. Yes, but he ends up with a situation where he thinks he can build uh, a true account based on reason. Yeah, he does. And, and isn't that the bit that's now under threat? Yes, it is. It's exactly, exactly what's under threat. Uh, and to doubt the efficacy and the universality of your views is a very important critique. It's a very intelligent thing to do, to constantly interrogate your own views. So that, that's, that's a good thing. The th thing that which most intrigues me is something that, that I was prompted by, by Quasi, which is to say that these the sets of belief, democracy, human rights, etc., whether they are radically incommensurate with a religious view of the world as you see embodied in, in Islam. Now, my own view, in short, is that they are not, that they are compatible. Of course, w I'm laying aside those of a very radical fundamentalist disposition who, who stop at nothing short of murder. I'm talking about the vast body of people who would profess to be um, Muslim who live in countries which are not currently democracies as we would constitute them. Is there a radical separation between that religious belief which leads to a theocracy on the one hand and the desires of people like me for the world to be democratic and free etc on the other. I think probably not. I don't believe in the idea of Asian values as a separate body which are incommensurate with what we're calling Western values. But that's an enormous But claim. before that, there was a, you say, doubt is part of the you know, Western tradition, but we've ended up doubting ourselves, haven't we? And, and isn't, isn't that the, 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 the core of the crisis here, that we, we, don't really, you know, we don't really believe the Enlightenment values in the way that we did once before? We, yes. And, and isn't that a real, a real threat? Well, there is a problem. We're doubting ourselves a bit in our politics. So we, we, the strong strain of anti-politics and, and cynicism about politics. But we, we mustn't press it too far. We've got a majority conservative government with a prime minister who went to Eton. Things haven't changed that much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we may well end up with a Clinton in the White House. Things haven't changed that much. You know, it's, we, we, we're right to interrogate it and be vigilant about it, but we're things haven't changed that quite so much. But we do doubt also the whether or not we have the right to impose these views elsewhere, whether we have the right to export these views. I think we doubt that. Okay, I'll Can come I come on in on this export, yeah. actually? Because, you see, the, the problem with the neocons was that they, they didn't really know whether they were valorizing imperial values or exporting democracy, and they kind of forgot that there's that kind of bit in the middle where people, you know, when they're faced with imperialism, fight for democracy for themselves, which is not the thing that was being imposed on them, by others, so uh, you know, there's a confusion there. Which sets of values are we? You know, my family stood against against British colonialism, uh, but but they didn't, for instance, as some Indians did, uh, join up with the Nazis. They made a very conscious decision. Nehru was my great uncle, the first Prime Minister of India. My grandfather, Ranjit Pandit, was a Sanskrit scholar who died of his imprisonment. But he was also a fluent German speaker, and he could have happily sat out the Third Reich inventing Nazi-Aryan policies for Indians. As if you read Paul Berman, Flight of the Intellectuals, he talks about uh, um, the Nazis getting Arab scholars to develop fascist Arab Muslim ideologies that were anti-Semitic. You know, we could have done that, but my enemy's enemy was not my friend. Indian nationalists were very clear that they were fighting the British Empire, but that fascism was an evil that had to be fought, and they stood with the European peoples. They, as victims, stood with the European peoples. Postmodernists are always victims, and they can never stand with anybody else against, uh, uh, you know, against uh, an evil that is even greater than the British Empire was. They were clear of that in their time. And my grandfather died of his imprisonment rather than you know, being a, a, a flunky of, of, of the Third Reich, uh, which, which he could well have been. Um, but the, the, you know, I agree with Kwasi. I mean, ISIS is, is a phenomenon that really we could not have dreamed up. Uh, and it is very, very serious. But I think if we look at it as a phenomenon against which Europe has to close its gates, we're not, and therefore against the millions of very frightened, desperate people who are fleeing ISIS, 
uh, we are really mistaking the nature of what that phenomenon is. It is an evil ideology, and like fascism from which it's defended, classic fascism, it is an internationalist ideology. When I say that the Hindu fundamentalists are fascists and the Muslim fundamentalists are fascists, they say you're being very Eurocentric in your views. Well, the thing is that you know th those those original fundamentalisms grew up at the same time. They were born at the same time as Mussolini and Hitler and so on. They read those people. They admired those people. Right. And, and they, ISIS is also British and French and German. I mean, it, it is here among us that people are mobilizing. And that isn't Muslims as a mass. That is certain people and groups that are mobilizing and, 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 and uh, uh, managing the propaganda and going out to fight uh, in uh, Iraq and Syria and, and, and Somalia and, and Nigeria and elsewhere, they're coming from Britain to those countries and they may be your sons and daughters but because uh, they're not only born Muslims. But look, the, the fact that they're coming from Britain is significant, but we've got to make sure that we understand that this is an ideology. And I tend to be less uh, sanguine than, um, than Phil about this. I mean, yes, a Clinton, yes, Cameron is a very much an establishment and reassuring figure. But the world is radically different from what it was when I was an undergraduate uh, 20 years ago. And we can't pretend otherwise. And I think that if you look across Europe, um, we had a situation in Austria where a, an avowed neo-Nazi essentially almost came within a hundred or thousands of votes of becoming a chancellor. We have a situation in France where it is very likely that Marine Le Pen will top the first round of the French presidential election um, you know, under first past the post, she would probably be the head of state. Um, and, you know, we can't just pretend that this is normal times and, you know, it's, you know, that with this, there's, uh, you know, is the clock still standing at three in Grantchester or, you know, there's there still, uh, you know, strawberry um, scones or whatever. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a very different world. And, um, and we can't pretend that, you know, things are just going to carry on uh, very smoothly. My worry is that, uh, and this is the problem I have, um, with a what I think is a very broadly tolerant and, 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 and sympathetic outlook is that if people, you know, in the West we had about 150 years of very, very, in Europe rather, very bitter religious wars. It's not, very t it's not taught very much in schools, but the Thirty Years' War in Germany was utterly horrific. And it was broadly a confessional war. It took about 200 years for Europe to separate church and state. Um, even as late as the late 18th century, the whole Enlightenment. You know, the Jesuits were kicked out of, of Switzerland, they were kicked out of France. These were extreme uh, measures, but there was a clear separation between church and state. The American uh, Declaration of uh, Independence, um, again, a clear and the, and the Constitution, clear separation of church and state. If you have a culture where religion is the absolute, whatever religion, it's not about it, it's not anti-Islam, if you were a Christian fundamentalist or, or a theocrat, there is a fundamental lack of compatibility between theocracy and the kinds of values we're talking about. And I think we have to, we have to square that. We have to face that boldly and full on. We can't yeah. pretend that we can, somehow, we can somehow marry the two. But well, what do we do about it? I mean, I completely agree with you that theocracy is, is absolutely incompatible with, with the sorts of values we're discussing. Um, let's imagine for the moment we had full confidence in that and, the, and that, that part of our discussion wasn't a problem. That doesn't itself do a great deal no. to alter the, the world situation, does no, it? I mean we, you wouldn't have to we, wouldn't, we wouldn't allow theocrats to flourish by giving them charitable status in this country, and that is what we have done. That is what we have done as a matter, uh, or you, I've never been in power. Uh, the Tories I'm not in power, and, the, and, the, and <laughs> Labour have uh, uh, politicians, uh, you know, Secular organizations cannot become charities because we're told Britain is a Christian state and you threaten the established order. So those of us who are fighting people who are dissident writers and, and, and fighting for the scientific temper and so on, we cannot get charitable status for our organizations. Whereas Sharia councils, which are setting up a parallel legal system in this country, have been given charitable status. Um, you know, the, the organizations that are running them are run by murderous organizations that, that, that um, you know, for instance, the, the, they're the, the, the brains behind the, the attacks on Bombay in 2008, Mumbai, as it's now called, on, 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 on a train station, on various hotels, on a Jewish center, on cafes. Um, you know, th the, the parent organization of 
of the Lashkar e Toiba, which is a particular terrorist group with the backing of the Pakistani state, um, has its ideologue sitting in Britain running charitable status Sharia councils. Okay. You Sh know, this is a problem that the, that the government has allowed to happen. It's not Muslims sneaking in and doing bad things. This, is, this has been endorsed by the state. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Theme two. There's agreement, I think, uh, on the panel here that there is a threat internally. We'll come to the external threat, which uh, Philip referred to to start with, but there's, there's an internal threat. What is our response to that? I mean, do, do you want to, to say, well, we should insist on these values and and impose them on people internally, forget about externally for a moment, but just internally, should we, should we try and assist, uh, insist two, on Two them? things, I mean, Britain's position in this Western context, in this debate about Western values is somewhat uh, anomalous, because we, we haven't, I talked about the separation of church and state, but of course we haven't really done that, because we've got a confessional state. I mean, the Queen is still the governor of the Church of England, we have bishops in the House of Lords, so nominally, um, we, 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 we haven't really gone through that Enlightenment sort of French Revolution stage. We're still very much in the Ancien Regime. And that's where a lot of these difficulties arise because we realize that, okay, we've got an established church. So we want to establish a lot of the privilege. We want to um, share a lot of the privileges that the established church has, faith schools, Church of England schools, with other faiths. And I think there is a big tension with that, um, which we haven't intellectually really resolved. Uh, in our own minds. So what's your answer? My answer Should there be more imposition? My answer, my answer actually would be to have some form of, um, we, we, need to, we need to have some sort of, not imposition, but we need to work out what it is, uh, the relationship between the church and the state. That sounds a little because bit of a fudge there. We no, need no, to no, but, no, but what you, you can't. What do you mean? What do I, I'm I'm trying to work it out church. at the moment. Disestablish the church. Well, I'm a conservative, so Go I don't actually believe. Go for enlightenment but, but principles <laughs> across <laughs> the board. I would certainly do that. I think one, one of the great achievements <laughs> of, of liberal democracies is, is the distinction between the public and the private. And I think it's, it's very important to distinguish between them in this question. So there is a public realm in which we all have to live and share a, a common life. And in that public realm, you, you lay aside your, your religious sensibilities and your ideological preferences. And there's a, there's a set of rules which, every, which we, I have no problem in saying everybody has to live by that set of rules in that public square. That leaves an enormous amount of space for people privately to carry their own preferences and to live their own forms of life. Which, again, I'm entirely tolerant of. But the, there are two separate realms. And the, the, the example you gave, Gita, of the, of the charities, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'd secularize it. That I think there are, in the public square, we, are, we ought to be secular, democratic, and very thorough about arguing for those values. And that is the trade-off there, is the quid pro quo, is that in your private realm, you do you like what you like. I don't mind. You see, I, I wouldn't go that far. I think that... Um, I'm not a disestablishmentarian. I like to get that word in occasionally. I'm not an anti-disestablishmentarian. I am an anti-disestablishmentarian. Because I don't, I don't really see a massive need for it. I think we can accommodate um, faith schools. I think we can accommodate these things. But I'm very much a strict letter of the law person. I think if people step outside uh, the law and actually commit crimes, I think we need to, they need to face the full force of the law. Um, but but we have I a national curriculum, don't we? I mean, if you're a, if you're a Muslim yeah, school, for example, yeah, that's right. you, you, you don't have total freedom no, to, right. to follow your own curriculum on a religious basis, quite rightly. No, that's, that's absolutely but right. I, I so mean, is, isn't this a sort of internal contradiction if 
of sort of liberalism and maybe of reason, you know, that the idea, well, if, if we're liberal, then we allow everything to take place, including those people who oppose liberals. But Hillary uh, and is, and yes, and not and just the liberals. It's Michael Gove as an education minister. This is what's astonishing. Michael Gove understands and then gets attacked by liberals because he says there's a, there's a continuum between extremists and terrorists. And yes, I agree right. with that. That's I agree right, with right, that. I, I agree with Michael Gove. I'm a paid up <laughs> lefty. But on that issue, I agree with that. However, his, his ideological commitment to private, you know, d d destroying s local authority control of state oh, schools. Oh, no, I'm totally in favor of that. Let's not go down there. Let's try and push it. Because, hang on, because led him to allowing more Muslim schools to be set up when he perfectly understands their dangers. And, and actually allowing some of these Muslim education trusts to take over secular schools with some line saying, oh, well, we won't interfere with a secular character school. Excuse me, you cannot run an edu you know, you would not expect aeronautical engineers to be drawn from people who, who ran wreckers yards. And that's what's happening to the educational system. G you know, can, can people I, who run I, wreckers like yards are supposed to on, on set the education system. On the system big story here, yeah, the which big is, the story is, is the crisis of the West. Yeah, but that is the crisis of the West, that Muslims are not deemed to be able to access education and the scientific temper and history and dancing and music and culture in the same way as any of you would expect for your children. That is a scandal. It is a scandal, and it's a scandal that Michael Gove, who understands these problems, I thought, presided over it as Minister of Education. That is the contradiction that we face. Okay, L let's try and take it out of the internal situation in the UK and to think the bigger picture. Because yeah. the uh, other uh, point that, uh, indeed, F Philip may write at the beginning, is that we face, or the, 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 the West faces, alternative powerful uh, economic uh, forces in, in the rise of uh, China. Uh, I assume you focused on China rather than India uh, because we see uh, India as being carrying Western values or universal values to avoid the, to, the opposition it that, that... It used to. It doesn't any longer. In terms of the external threat, are we seeing the, ri the, the, the significant rise of alternatives to uh, uh, Western liberal values? And is that going to mean that they will bring their own values to the world stage, which will potentially in the long term uh, uh, undermine uh, the, the values that yeah, we've I mean been ex very exporting? Very good question, to which I'm not sure I know the answer. I, d I do mean China, and I don't mean India, because I I'm no fan of Modi at all, but I still regard India as a... As a as a thriving democracy with the rule of law, independent judiciary, and all of those things. So I do think you can, notwithstanding the um, unpleasant nature of the current government, I don't, I wouldn't um, besmirch India with that. Whereas China, I think, is a different case entirely. But you've got the, the political and the economic, of course, are connected because you've got a, a an authoritarian capitalism, a sort of state capitalism, which which does present itself as an alternative model for the world. So it, it, it's a big claim that they're making, and pretty successfully, <laughs> in, at least in material terms, though, though not measured by anything else. If you think development is also measured by the freedom of the people who live with, under the jurisdiction, then China is a, is a very poor uh, model to emulate. But economically, it's very powerful indeed. So now if in 50 years, uh, China is easily the largest economy, th thought now to be like four times the size of the US economy in 50 years' time. I is that going to mean that uh, Western values are, are going to be eradicated? I don't believe that. I don't believe. I mean, if you look at the history of China, it's never been, um, as far as I understand, uh, an, a, a power that's ex tried to project its power across the world. I mean, there were no Chinese colonies uh, in in Africa or in Asia, in the well way that the West. What about Chinese colonies in now in, in Africa? The, in, in the well, there, I mean, there's a, there's a debate to which um, economic uh, investment is part of empire. I mean, that's a that's a, there's a long um, uh, discussion about that. You should write a book about but that. I, <laughs> <laughs> no, I bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> so you're say say saying you don't think there's a threat to I, I don't think values from the way the, the, the I mean, the China, the Middle Kingdom, if you like. I'm not an expert on it, but from what I've read about it. I don't read uh, the kind of the expansionist um, ideology that, that you know the Mongols or the Romans or frankly the British or even the French or possibly the Americans have. Um, I don't see um, and uh, and you look around the world. I mean, one of the problems that we've had um, is really a paradox in that America um, and Britain before America it really involved itself as a global policeman. 
um, you know, Pax uh, Britannica, all that yeah. stuff. Uh, world order imposed. And one of the, thing, the issues we have now in terms of the crisis of the West is very much this dilemma, because clearly in, a, in President Obama, you have a, a president who doesn't believe in American imperialism in the way that it, some of his predecessors did. And he is desperate to withdraw. I mean, it's clear to anyone who speaks to his people in Washington that he doesn't want, he never wanted to be the president who would intervene massively in the Middle East. I mean, he, in a way, he won the Democratic nomination, he won the presidency on a ticket of trying to extract America from uh, the region. But what's happened is that, you know, as I, you've probably traveled in the region, I travel in the region a lot in the Middle East, the um, Middle East governments are appalled that America is withdrawing from them. And they are seeking Russian influence. Russia is a country we haven't mentioned exactly. um, in this it's conversation. But, but, but clearly, Russia, the role of Russia, um, the values that are not Western values or universal values in any way, really, um, is exercising a lot of influence and power in the Middle East. Now, is that something we should be concerned about? I happen to think it is. And fundamentalist um, Iran. Okay, uh, so, so, so you're not so worried yeah. about China, but there's Russia, there's also, of course, there's the Muslim Iran, world. And, yeah. and, and, and these seem to be real threats, do they not? To, I would to, worry to about those, China. To the dominance there's of Western values. There's what, there, that's, that's all true, absolutely. And I think we are seeing the uh, consequences of America which was withdrawn because an America which withdraws brings with it dangers as well as an America which engages. Um, there's one other thing I'd like, just like to say about China, which in the context of the Western values, which I think I broadly agree with Kwasi that, that China's imperial ambitions are limited to owning the ports of every country in the world rather than Large the rest of it. Large tracts of land. They've brought up that, huge that amounts of Africa. That may not be right. I, I, I concede that, that that may change. But there's another way in which the, the what we're calling Western values in this conversation will whether they, uh, on a 50-year, 100-year view, start to come back through in China. We've had one aborted attempt to establish something along those lines. It's not to say that the Chinese people, 100 years hence, when prosperity has flooded through that society, simply accept the status quo politically in that country. That's not necessarily the case at all. Theme three. Okay, so, so I think w w we've again, got a certain amount of consensus here on the panel that there's not only a threat internally, there seems to be pretty serious threat externally from a variety of different sources from uh, cultures that don't uphold Western values. So the question I then want to pose, what are we going to do about it on the international perspective? We talked a little bit about what we're going to do internally. What are we going to do uh, internationally? Should we be trying to impose uh, Western values? Do, do we want to be fighting for Western values out there? Or not? Can I pick up on something that um, uh, Philip, uh, a remark that he made regarding China and the development, the, the potential political evolution of China? And I, I lived through, I mean, I was elected in 2010, so I was very much engaged with uh, debates about the Arab Spring, which happened in 2011. And the view of the Arab Spring from Whitehall, certainly, and possibly from a Washington, was that this marked uh, an incredible opportunity in which uh, Western values, in inverted commas, universal values, democracy, whatever you want to call it, could spread uh, in the region. We all believed, I think mistakenly, that if we got rid of uh, Gaddafi, and if we got rid of Mubarak, and if we got rid of Assad, um, spontaneous uh, eruptions of secular democracy and people like me wearing funny colored rosettes, knocking on doors and canvassing, that that would happen. And of course it didn't happen. And so my, my thinking has really changed over the last five years. I don't think it's inevitable, I hate to say it, but I don't think it's inevitable that these countries, such as Egypt, will evolve in, into democracies as we, as we know them. Um, I don't believe that it is an axiom of history that as people get richer, they, they necessarily become more democratic. I mean, we've seen... I've so written so what do we do? So, so, so what I would do is I would not impose... The last thing I would do is impose a political... Try and impose or seek even through diplomacy to try uh, to so impose... So what do we do? So what we do <laughs> is we... Um, I think we, we, we have to... I mean, this sounds very brutal, but we have to um, make sure that there is a modicum of stability. So I'm not How? ruling out intervention. Sorry. I wouldn't... I wouldn't rule out intervention. So, so in what sense is intervention not in position? I, I'm not sure no, I understand that distinction. No, no there, is a, there, is a, there is a very fine distinction. You're a philosopher. There is a distinction between imposing a political system and trying to, Im, uh, in terms of how the rulers are selected, and, uh, and trying to maintain stability in terms of the rule of law. Um, and you've seen this in, in modern history. 
Um, for example, when the, um, the Americans went to uh, Japan and Germany, they imposed systems on those countries after the Second World War. In other countries, they tried to be, okay. for good or ill, more stable. Okay, intervention, not imposition. Yeah, well, one other thing we do, uh, and we will continue to do, is to trade. Trading nations don't fight with one another, as a rule. That was sort of the First World War. <laughs> 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 they, they, they actually thought World that. World the fourth yeah. Yeah. No, but wrote a book saying war had been abolished because of trade. And it if we're not going true. to intervene, which we're, we're not, because one of the things we've lost confidence in in recent years is oh, our well, capacity to... Well, he was in favour of intervention. I think he just wasn't in favour of imposition. I don't well, think you can... Yeah, sorry, I mean, I agree. Yeah. Well, we, we, at the moment, we've lost confidence in the capacity of... Western governments really. It when I when I say intervene, I mean yeah. I, I mean military. There's yeah. lots of oh, other forms of intervention that that you can have. There's a diplomatic and economic, etc. Is it right that we've lost confidence? It's not right if we've lost confidence in every single instance. No, there are some instances there, there where there is there is an intervention, a Western-backed intervention going on. Thank God, actually, I never thought I'd say this, but there is the the Kurds in 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 the Syrian Kurds are being backed by the Pentagon. I think there's a fight between the State Department and the Pentagon because actually a lot of the West has looked to the Muslim Brotherhood and so on as precisely the kind of stabilizing forces, uh, wi wi which was a pernicious idea. Uh, but, but, but the Pentagon has seen the light and there are special forces and, 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 and aerial support and so on to the Kurdish fight against so ISIS. And it's a very important Can I pick struggle. up on what, because I don't think people realize this. I think mm -hmm. that, and I know people in special forces and that sort of thing, but, but I think that a lot of the intervention goes on, is not debated on the floor of the House of Commons anymore. So if, you, if, if, I, if I look at Libya, I would guess, I don't know, but I think there are probably quite a few special forces in Libya. Now, is that an intervention? Um, there are certainly uh, people in, on the ground in Iraq. I think there are British soldiers on the ground in Syria. Um, I, I don't know any of this, but that's my suspicion. Well, they're definitely Americans on the ground. Uh, yeah, so, so are these interventions? They yeah. are interventions. Of course, they're yeah. interventions. I think what we're, we're coming to here, though, though I think we probably all agree on, on those, those examples, and there certainly there are things that can be done, and we should have the confidence to do them. But that's not going to change that region so fundamentally. Right, so the answer to your question, Hilary, is what can we do is we can do a little bit, but actually there's a great deal we can't do. Th therefore, I mean, quasi struggling for the answer to your question is not because he somehow can't think of an answer, is that there actually isn't a very good answer to your question. No, so but can, I, can I raise Tunisia? Because Tunisia is seen as the one country that remained fa fairly stable and you know, didn't fall back into dictatorship or chaos or hasn't been completely taken over by fundamentalists. And quite often in a Western discourse, that's, that's put down to the Muslim Brotherhood of Tunisia and Hadha being moderates, right? cut that one from your mind because what happened in Tunisia was that w and, 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 and they got uh, the people who did this got a Nobel Prize but it's hardly ever been discussed it's a, a good Nobel Peace Prize not a, not one a, a satirical one <laughs> uh, like giving one to Kissinger uh, where the trade unionists the, 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 the you know the national body of trade unions got together with the national body of, of uh, you know the chambers of commerce or whatever they were called the business body they, they allied because they saw the threat of fundamentalism. So under a Muslim Brotherhood government, they actually used a civil society democratic process to set limits on what that government right. could do. And they, and they were fighting, you know, even worse forces. But the irony of that, if you speak to people in Egypt and they, and they, t they mention this, they say that's because the French state was actually quite, they, they attribute that, the strong uh, trade union movement, the strong secular forces, the, uh, 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 an established middle class. They actually attribute that to the colonial, rightly or wrongly, they, they attribute to it to the colonial, yeah, yeah, to the history and the colonial yeah. contact. But, but isn't, I mean, th those all in a sense uh, feel vaguely safe in the sense that it's relatively minor in terms of the um, uh, impact on us. If we're dealing with major powers, Russia being a good I example, I mean, uh, there are now people who are to saying, you know, Russia might invade the Baltic states. Uh, should we have the confidence uh, of, of uh, sort of Western values to think, no, we have to stand up for this, um, we, we're going to put troops uh, on the ground? Or is it that we just feel, well, no, actually, we don't really believe enough about anything um, and, and we just got to let the world go on uh, as, 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 it fe as, as it feels? Well, we've got a practical um, constraint as well. I mean, the example you gave is an apocalyptic one. Um, and 
there's an intellectual question about whether we've got the capacity and the confidence to think we, we were defending something worth defending, which I think in extremists like that we would have. Whether we'd have the actual capacity to do what you're asking to be done is an entirely separate question, and I'm not sure we have. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pessimistic and conservative about our capacity to do the things that we think we'd like to. So the age of the West is no, possibly yeah, over. No, there is a crisis. I don't think it's over, are? but there I is I a mean, crisis. I mean, but, just but is the age of the West possibly over? No, it's not over. It'll be a, have a very, very long tail. America okay, will America it's got will a very be long tail, so it, it's coming. The end no, of the no, West. No, no, no. <laughs> no, but it doesn't mean America will be the world's largest power for another See, 50 years, yeah. I'd imagine. Okay. But the, but the, but so the question. Got a of we've, got a, we've, got a, we've got a few decades left. left. Yeah. But the question, the question of um, the. Uh, is a very good question. If what happens, what actually would happen if Russia. And you, when they would do it, they always do this, and I've noticed it, in the kind of interregnum after the. Pre there's the, the po after the election in November and the inauguration in January, there's that kind of fallow period. And I remember the Israelis um, invaded Gaza. Do you remember that at that time? And, and if, let's say, in between November this year and January next year, Russia were to do a, 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 a coup in the, um, you know, uh, in the Baltics, you know, what would we do? What would America do? Um, and I think that's an, I'm not giving, I hope I'm not giving anyone any ideas. But I think that sort of question <laughs> is, is a very difficult question to answer. I'm not actually sure what the Western response would be, which actually underlines the, the subject of this uh, and heading. And would a Trump presidency yeah. make the world safer, um, in fact? Yeah. Well, forget well, about that. That's a whole another. I think we but most but of us probably need the I answer to that is, one. I think, I, think, I think the fact that I am not 100% certain that America would respond yeah. actually underlines and emphasizes this. this that we're not sure. Th that, we're, that there is this doubt. Yes. And there is, there is a, and this is what I was saying in my opening remarks, I think there is a, a crisis is probably too strong a word, but there is a, a sort of uh, uncertainty surrounding um, our ability, our, our desire to defend Western values. Uh, and does that mean you think, well, we need to reinforce them somehow? I think we do. But I mean, this is, this is where this is an open-ended uh, conversation um, about, about how, we, how we reinforce those values. But there's certainly, I mean, the fact, even the phenomenon of Trump suggests as I was saying earlier, these are not normal times. This is not something that happens every four years and is a normal run, you know, normal kind of event. These are extreme events that are happening. Well, that's an excellent uh, point to end on. I'd like to thank uh, our speakers for a really fascinating uh, conversation. Many thanks for coming along. Great. Thanks. That was good. Really good. Really interesting. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.